0: If you're going cuckoo from quarantine or insane from isolation, we have poems to pacify you, diversions to distract you and news to amuse you. I'm Pippa Curtis. Welcome to Worcester's virus-free but sociably connected Talking Magazine. Now we're very aware here at the Talking Magazine that we haven't been in touch with you very much over the last few months. So it felt appropriate that communication should be the theme of our first edition that's recorded remotely. When I say remotely, I mean that Phil is at home. Hello. And Jane is at home. Hello. And Jane has a poem to start us off by Tennessee Williams entitled, rather conveniently, Communication.
1: But under the silence of what we say to each other is the much more articulate silence of what we don't say to each other. A storm of things... Unspoken, coiled, reserved, appointed, ticking away like a clock attached to a time bomb. Crash, fire, demolition, wound up in the quietly, almost tenderly small, familiar things unspoken.
0: Unspoken communication. Well, I'm speaking to you from my home too. And we're all of us connected by the wonders of the internet. In these peculiar times, the internet, love it or hate it, has become crucial to world communication. But have you ever thought about what makes up the World Wide Web? How do all those computers of the internet communicate with one another? Radio? Satellites? Pigeons? In an article written last year... Dino Carno gives us some surprising facts. The world takes internet communication for granted today, not giving much attention to the backbone driving this phenomenon. In fact, not many people know that 97% of global communications is carried by submarine cables in the sea and not through satellites as popularly believed. On August the 16th, 1858, international communications changed forever when Queen Victoria sent a short message in the form of a telegram to the then US President James Buchanan. The message travelled through 2,500 kilometres of newly laid submarine cable and took 16 hours to arrive, but it worked and was a massive improvement on the alternative 10-day duration it would have taken to cross the Atlantic by sea. A month earlier, the British ship Agamemnon and the American ship Niagara had met in mid-Atlantic, spliced their cables, and began to lay it out as they steamed back towards their respective countries. After several failed attempts, Agamemnon arrived in Ireland and Niagara in Newfoundland. It was an expensive endeavour, privately financed by a number of forward-thinking entrepreneurs who believed they could succeed where others had failed. Amongst them, the Scottish submarine cable pioneer John Pender, who gambled his fortune on cracking the logistical and technical challenges presented by laying a cable across two continents. There were immediate commercial benefits and it did not take long for the business to grow and transform from novelty to necessity. So much so that the following year, a ship was sent out with a large hook to retrieve the broken end of a previous attempt and somehow succeeded to grapple one end and splice it to a new cable, completing the network connection and so doubling his capacity in just a few months. Of course, the cable companies needed their return, so they got together to agree on international tariffs. There were no social interests built into the plan, and the exorbitantly high tariffs created an elite space for high-end trade. In 1866, it cost £20 to send a 20-word telegram a third of the annual salary of a fisherman in Newfoundland, where the Atlantic Cable landed. So, no incentive to share stories about the one that got away. Almost 50 years later, little had changed. Henneke Heaton, a British Member of Parliament, would have approved of our present-day all-you-can-eat voice and data packages, as telegrams remained out of reach for most people. Heaton's campaign over a 100 years ago for removal of obstacles to communications between different parts of the world, believing it would lead to better feeling between nations, struck a similar chord to the early promoters of the internet. Having lived in Australia, he campaigned for penny post systems for telegraphs at a time when the cable rate for one word still ranged from one to six days' salary of a farm worker. A lot of lolly for a simple lol. Though virtually unknown now, at the time of his death, in 1896, Sir John Pender controlled companies owning one-third of the cables in the world. Cables which would form the base of the networks that years later developed into the World Wide Web. Submarine cables remain a big market and typically are owned by multiple companies, many of them telecom operators in strategic locations. As partners in the Europe-India Gateway, a 15,000-kilometre submarine cable from London to India landing in Gibraltar and connecting Europe, Africa and Asia. They serve the local as well as international markets. It's not a new business, though. The first submarine telegraph cable started its operation in Gibraltar in 1870. The company that laid the first part of the cable took the name of Falmouth, Gibraltar and Malta Telegraph Company and eventually became cable and wireless. Though it may come as a surprise to many people, most of our internet communication still involves submarine cables today. Even though there are thousands of satellites now orbiting the Earth, it's still necessary to run very long cables along ocean floors. New technology has, in this case, not overtaken the old. In fact, as little as 3% of global communications are carried via satellite, which means 97% of the world's communications are transported around the world via fibre-optic submarine cables. The discussions and debates over bandwidth and tariffs are older than one imagines, and the need for accurate wholesale billing is more important now than ever. Anyone old enough to have watched TV in the 80s would have heard the, and now transmitted by satellite, announcements from proud channels presenting cross-Atlantic events. The problem is that satellite transmissions suffer from latency and loss, whilst optical fibre can transmit at 99.7% of the speed of light. The only people watching Netflix via satellite are researchers in Antarctica. But don't tell anyone. So all those people out there looking up Wikipedia, uploading their fitness stats, or navigating with online maps receiving a mail, or calling someone abroad. It is very likely that you have unknowingly used a submarine communications cable many leagues under the sea. Tennessee Williams was musing earlier on the things that we don't say having lots of hidden meaning. Phil, on the other hand, has found Lewis Carroll musing on things said that have no meaning at all.
2: Phil. This is the White Knight's song. I'll tell thee everything I can. There's little to relate. I saw an aged, aged man sitting on a gate. Who are you, aged man, I said, and how is it you live? And his answer trickled through my head like water through a sieve. He said, I look for butterflies that sleep among the wheat. I make them into mutton pies and sell them in the street. "'I sell them unto men,' he said, "'who sail on stormy seas, "'and that's the way I get my bread, "'a trifle, if you please. "'But I was thinking of a plan "'to dye one's whiskers green, "'and always use so large a fan "'that they could not be seen. "'So, having no reply to give "'to what the old man said, "'I cried, "'Come, tell me how you live, "'and thumped him on the head. "'His accents mild took up the tale. "'He said, "'I go my ways, "'and when I find a mountain rill, "'I set it in a blaze.' and thence they make a stuff they call Roland's Macassar Oil, yet twopence halfpenny is all they give me for my toil. But I was thinking of a way to feed oneself on batter, and so go on from day to day, getting a little fatter. I shook him well from side to side until his face was blue. Come tell me how you live, I cried, and what is it you do? He said, I hunt for Haddock's eyes among the heather bright, and work them into waistcoat-buttons in the silent night. And these I do not sell for gold or coin of silvery shine, but for a copper halfpenny, and that will purchase nine. I sometimes dig for buttered rolls, or set limed twigs for crabs. I sometimes search for grassy knolls, for wheels of handsome cabs. And that's the way, he gave a wink, by which I get my wealth, and very gladly will I drink your honour's noble health.' I heard him then, for I had just completed my design to keep the menai bridge from rust by boiling it in wine. I thanked him much for telling me the way he got his wealth, but chiefly for his wish that he might drink my noble health. And now, if ere by chance I put my fingers into glue, or madly squeeze a right-hand foot into a left-hand shoe, or if I drop upon my toe a very heavy weight, I weep for it reminds me so of that old man I used to know, whose look was mild, whose speech was slow, whose hair was whiter than the snow, whose face was very like a crow, with eyes like cinders all aglow, who seemed distracted with his woe, who rocked his body to and fro, and muttered mumblingly and low, as if his mouth were full of dough, who snorted like a buffalo that summer evening long ago, A sitting on a gate.
0: Thank you, Phil. The Worcester Talking newspaper celebrated its 42nd anniversary this summer. But that doesn't make it the earliest form of spoken news by a long way. John Plush has been sifting through the archives. Now hear this.
3: Stentor a herald of the Greek forces during the Trojan War, said to have had the voice of 50 men. His name lives on in our words Dentorian when describing someone's unusually loud voice. The Bayeux tapestry illustrates two men in the 11th century walking in a procession alongside the coffin of Edward the Confessor, ringing handbells, some experts say, to attract notice. Clearly an otherwise low-profile event. From those days, even to these, men have been ringing handbells to gain public attention before loudly proclaiming the latest news.
4: Ladies and gentlemen. I'm
3: talking about town criers, of course, an essential part of daily life at a time long ago when, even if they had possessed a daily newspaper, few people would have possessed the ability to read it. As the literacy of Britain's population remained low well into the late 19th century, People came to rely on town criers, or bellmen, as they were equally known, as a useful way of hearing about proclamations, edicts, laws and news. Having delivered his news by vocal means, for the further information of those who could read it, the crier would then nail the paper itself to the doorpost of a nearby inn, or, to put it the more modern way, to post it. Little did they know then how ubiquitous that word would become in the 21st century. Of course, the news was not always good – more tax, anybody? And the town crier no more welcome than the tidings he brought. But the position of town crier was seen as so important – he was conveying the wishes of the king, after all – that harming the hapless bellman became a treasonable offence. And even now, there are ancient laws which are supposed to protect town criers against heckling or physical harm. Those chosen to be criers were usually people of some standing in the community, for they had to be able to write and to read the official proclamations. But a crier's duties extended beyond that of mere newscaster. They were appointed by the mayor as an instrument of the authorities, responsible for hauling felons off to the stocks, administering public floggings, officiating at the hanging of condemned criminals, and assisting in the cutting down of the resultant corpse when it was over. To do this, they tended to be fairly burly fellows, but women too, good actress town crier in Northwich in the seventeen nineties, the records show that a woman carried out the role audibly and laudably, it said for over twenty years. In some cases, it was a husband and wife team with the wife ringing the bell and the husband doing the shouting. It's got to be a joke in there somewhere uh, by the way, should you stumble upon a group of these by their own admission rather noisy people you would refer to them by their collective noun, a bellow of criers, And as for shouting, their traditional cry is an Anglo-Norman word derived from the imperative form of the archaic French verb oyer, to hear, and thus means, as a command, hear ye. And, of course, they would conclude their broadcast with a resounding God save the king! Or queen. There is a tradition, going back as far as the 16th century, of delivering a proclamation in rhyme. But not all criers added this complication to their bulletin, even then, particularly, perhaps, if they were reporting on more serious matters like the progress of the Black Death. And talking of serious news, it's believed that during the Great Fire of London, The lack of fatalities was thanks largely to the effectiveness of the London town criers alerting the public to the danger. In keeping with their affiliation to the mayor of the town, criers since the late 17th century have worn robes similar to those of the mayor himself. And note that criers resist the use of the word costume, wishing perhaps to be seen as something more substantial than a mere character on a stage. And they avoid references to uniform, too, because no two bellmen will be dressed the same. But there are motifs common to most town criers on this side of the Atlantic. For instance, buckled shoes, breeches, greatcoat. A tricorn hat is another essential item for any self respecting bellman with a plume of feathers to represent it is said quill pens as a gentle reminder of his ability to write his own proclamations. I say on this side of the Atlantic because you'll find town criers all over the world and very popular they are too with national and international town crier competitions being held every year. Well not this year. Sadly, due to the pandemic, the 42nd Ancient and Honourable Guild of Town Criers Championships, due to take place in Helmsley in Yorkshire in July, with competitors travelling from Australia, Nova Scotia, Bermuda, Italy and Mexico, has had to be postponed a year to July 2021. Appropriately, although the news of this postponement was broken via the internet, the organiser, David Hind, who made the announcement, Is in fact Helmsley's own town crier. A meeting of media, you could say.
4: Citizens! God save the Queen!
0: Speak gently. It is better far to rule by love than fear. Speak gently. Let no harsh words mar the good we might do here. Speak gently to the little child, Its love be sure to gain. Teach it in accents, soft and mild, It may not long remain. Speak gently to the aged one, Grieve not the careworn heart, The sands of life are nearly run, Let such in peace depart. Speak gently, kindly to the poor, Let no harsh tone be heard, they have enough they must endure without an unkind word. Speak gently to the erring. No, they must have toiled in vain. Perhaps unkindness made them so. Oh, win them back again. Speak gently. Tis a little thing dropped in the heart's deep well. The good, the joy, which it may bring. Eternity shall tell. As an antidote to those noisy town criers, that was Speak Gently by George Hangford. A new voice joins us this month Martin Bourne. He's very interested in an important local
5: landmark. But first, the news. Behind me are the celebrated transmission towers in Droitwich, which which for many years have been sending the BBC signals into the ether to be received worldwide. Uh, But last night they had callers from as far afield as Buenos Aires and Tokyo complaining that the English by radio series had been interrupted by what they called spurious and unfamiliar sounds. Mr Eddie Lighthouse, who's the regional engineer here, claimed that the sounds could not have come from a terrestrial transmitter. Uh, The wave pattern was completely foreign, according to him. They had to have come from outer space. This is Mark Dievlin for
6: the Lunchtime News at the Droitwich Transmitters. That wasn't a real news broadcast. That was a little April Fool's joke recorded by BBC Radio's Mark Dievlin 20-odd years ago. But ever since it was built in the 1930s, the radio transmitter at Witchbold near Droitwich has attracted a lot of interest. At that time, the national radio programme of the BBC there were only two, national and regional, were broadcast from Daventry. But the transmitter there wasn't strong enough to reach all the parts of the country that the national programme was intended to serve. So it was decided to build a more powerful transmitter nearer to Birmingham. And for this, Droitwut was chosen. The local press covered the story. September 2nd, 1933
1: the two huge aerial masts which are being erected by the b b c at their new broadcasting station at Witchbold, will be landmarks by day and night during the waking hours their seven hundred feet of lattice steel make them the most prominent feature of the worcestershire plain and from dusk onwards brilliant electric lamps of many thousand candle power at the top of the structures will flash a warning to low-flying aircraft. Getting the masts up is a tricky job, and hundreds of tons of concrete were used to give a secure foundation. High-speed electric lifts are to be constructed inside the masts and engineers will be able to shoot up aloft in a few seconds. The station which it is stated is to be called Droytwich, will be the biggest controlled by the BBC. When it is opened in about 12 months' time, its voice will be the loudest in Europe.
6: The new transmitter was planned to be eight times the power of the old Daventry one a fact that caused some consternation, as some experts worried that a great deal of interference with other stations would occur and bring trouble in international broadcasting circles. Nevertheless, construction work on the masts and the associated buildings began in April 1933, and by September the two masts had reached a height of over 500 feet. But there was a problem. The money the construction crew were paid, it had been agreed, would increase in proportion to the height they were working at. But, at less than two bob an hour, or £4.10 shillings a week, they argued that this was insufficient as danger money for working on the highest structure ever built in the UK. The men initially came out on strike for it, and eventually settled for 4 shillings an hour instead of two at 700 feet. Nine, ten. This is Droitwich testing on a wavelength of 1,500 metres. Droitwich testing. This is a national transmitter at Droitwich testing on a wavelength of 1,500 metres. By July 1934, the testing of the new long-wave transmitter was underway.
1: Tests will also be held between the hours of 7 and 9 in the morning to ascertain the strength and quality of reception in daylight. Gramophone records are used. The programmes consist mainly of dance music. Now anyone caring to sit up until the small hours of the morning can judge for themselves the strength and quality of this new giant of the air which is expected
6: to take over the national programme on September the 6th. Even at 150 kilowatts, 50 kilowatts less than had been originally planned, the amount of electrical power required to drive the transmitter was huge and was provided by four large diesel generators situated in an engine room at the rear of the building. Each generator was rated at 750 horsepower. The fuel oil for them stored in two surface tanks, each containing 150 tonnes of diesel. The valves used generated a great deal of heat and needed to be kept as cool as possible, so the site had to include a 300,000-gallon reservoir of water which was circulated around the machinery. To keep the water free from algae, the pond, as it was known, was home to thousands of goldfish. The station's canteen kept a supply of stale bread available to feed them. It was against the regulations to remove fish from the pond, but, according to John Phillips, a station engineer at the time, this didn't stop some of the more exotic varieties turning up in many a local ornamental fish pond. On Thursday, the 6th of September 1934, a party of 150 journalists from all over the country were conveyed by Midland Red Bus from George's Rail Station to Witchbold, where, with BBC staff and representatives of overseas broadcasters, they were given an extensive tour of the new station and its equipment and formed the audience for the opening ceremony. At a quarter to four in the afternoon, at a signal from Admiral Sir Charles Carpendale, controller of the BBC, the new Droitwich longwave transmitter finally went on air. The
1: new transmitter at Droitwich is the last word in transmitter construction and should set a standard for the rest of the world.
6: Five years after the grand opening ceremony at Troitwitsch, the country found itself staring directly into the dark face of war. Throughout 1939, the threat of hostilities with Germany had been brewing, and the BBC made preparations at which board should the worst occur. Air raid shelters for staff were built and two underground tanks providing a further 200 tonnes of fuel were installed for the generators. At 6.55pm on September 1st of that year, a message was received by the BBC for all transmitters, including Droitwich, to close down and change over to a pre-arranged wartime broadcasting system. At 8.15 that same evening, the regional and national services were replaced by a single home service. This
7: is London. You will now hear a statement by the Prime Minister.
6: I am speaking to you from the cabinet room at 10 Downing Street. This morning, the British ambassador in Berlin handed the German government a final note By the time the transmitter broadcast Neville Chamberlain's iconic speech, full security measures were in operation at Wichbold. All windows were bricked up against blast, full blackout was put into effect and the masked lighting was discontinued. BBC staff evacuated from London's installations department soon moved into offices built specially for them at the site and the town of Droitwich provided lodgings for many of the evacuees and their families. All BBC radio transmitters during the war came under the control of RAF Fighter Command. This was because enemy bombers approaching over the English Channel could use the signals radiating from the broadcasting masts as beacons, helping them to plot a course to their target. Fighter command monitoring the approach of the raiders would order certain transmitters to be closed down for a period, thus confusing the enemy navigators. The Droitwich transmitter took an even more active role towards the end of the war, at a time when Germany was using its own radio broadcasting stations to convey instructions to a Luftwaffe aircraft as they flew toward Britain. <laughs> to combat this, board was used as a jamming device, operated by fighter command. The engineers at Droitwich would set up a warbling signal from a noise generator on a prearranged frequency in order to obliterate the signals that the warplanes were receiving from their homeland. Shortly after peace finally returned to Britain, Droitrich found itself once more making broadcasting history. Veteran actor Arnold Peters, who played a central role in radio's longest-running drama series, tells us how.
1: fertiliser,
7: uh, wasn't it? That's it. Mm-hmm. it. reminded me to order... Right the Archers, at nine, four o'clock on Whit Monday, 1950... Emerged from their cosy farmhouse hearths and dusty grain filled barns to invite a still war shattered Britain to come in for a cup of tea and a chat. Of course, should have been a mug if I didn't. So
1: you could if you didn't get rid of your best work. The first
7: five episodes of what went on to become the world's longest running broadcast serial were transmitted as a trial run to listeners only in the Midlands. The audience of 500,000 that heard the first pilot program had grown by the end of the following year to six million.
6: Strong enough to broadcast to the whole of Britain and large parts of Europe, the signals from the Droitwich transmitter have, in the past, resulted in local householders, especially those living adjacent to the transmitter site, hearing programmes mysteriously emanate from domestic objects, such as cast-iron drainpipes or a cooking range. This was due to long lengths of house-wiring and large metal objects acting as receiving aerials, picking up energy from the nearby transmitter's aerial. One lady even claimed to be able to hear a programme every time she touched the poker onto the firebars of her metal fireplace. But has the transmitter itself ever received signals from outer space? Like in Mark Devlin's report? In 1901, Raymond Taylor had composed this piece, A Signal from Mars, inspired perhaps by the the turn-of-the-century interest in the existence of life on other planets. The cover of the sheet music depicts a couple of remarkably European-looking Martians, beaming this catchy little number back towards us here on Earth. I wonder... Might this music be what the Witch transmitter is supposed to have been picking up when Mark filed his report on that 1st of April in 1997?
0: Hmm, maybe not. But it's a romantic idea. Thanks to Martin Bourne for that look back at our relationship with Europe and the cosmos. Jane has had a particularly memorable relationship with the telephone.
1: Jane. The first telephone I remember was my grandmother's. We moved to live with her in London in 1948. This telephone lived in the hall on a table and was black, with a twisted lead and a dial with numbers and letters into which you inserted your finger and turned. Our number was L-E-Y 4256. As I grew up, I began to realise that the telephone was in the hall for a reason. It was cold. No central heating, which made the phone calls short and kept the cost down. The alternative was to go to a red telephone box, which always seemed to be occupied and for which you never had enough change to feed the machine for long calls. Some of these telephone boxes are now being sold for a pound. We moved out of London to Upminster. The telephone was still black and still in the hall and it was still cold, still no central heating. I got my first job as a shorthand typist with a turn on the telephone switchboard when the telephonist had gone home, inserting plugs into the board to answer a call and transferring the call to the right, sometimes, place with another plug insertion. I joined the police force. No mobile phones, So you carried a wireless around which was like a brick with an aerial, very much like the later first mobile phones. I manned the phone at the old Scotland Yard on night duty to deal with those wanting police officers to deal with children, etc. Of course, women. A bit warmer there, but a more modern black phone. I did have a tendency to nod off, though. The quarters for women police were in Bayswater and had a cubicle for the telephone, which was, of course, always occupied when you wanted to use it, or you were at the other end of the building if a call came for you. Then it was back to visiting the red telephone box for making phone calls for a year while I sang for a living in various parts of the country. Marriage bought the first telephone not in the hall and not black, cream-coloured instead. Years passed, and mobile phones made an appearance. The brick had arrived. It really is amazing how quickly the brick morphed into something that could be held in the hand. Not, however, in Egypt, where I was working for part of the year from the 1990s onwards. A call to say I'd arrived in Cairo had to be made from a phone booth, in a telephone exchange on Tahrir Square. Yes, the one where the revolution started in 2011. The hotel we cheap archaeologists stayed in didn't have a phone. When I got down to the excavation site, there was a phone in the kitchen, but only for incoming calls, and the wires were constantly being pilfered by the locals. No hope there, then. So Let Us Home became the order of the day. This year of 2020, in Egypt, in February, we were all given SIM cards for our mobiles so that we could keep in touch whilst working on site, which was quite a large one. There's a change. I now have four phones in my house, all in different rooms, i never seem to be in one of them when the telephone rings and it's lethal to leave the phone somewhere else and not put it back on its cradle you then spend a good half hour looking for it so mobiles have become more available and now they are indispensable i use mine for banking eBaying, buying things online The weather, news, emails, texts, downloading academic works, compass, alarm and a hundred other things. If I find I've left my phone at home, a slight panic kicks in and spurs an urge to return home quickly. Whatever happened to taking things as they come? Although I would be pushed to find a phone box, I suppose. Can I use your phone, please? (laughs) (laughs) Before we had telephones, the only way of
0: sending messages over long distances was by Morse code. These days, some might see it as a rather crude method of communicating. After all, there was no voice to listen to, but it proved to be a very robust medium, especially in times of
1: trouble.
3: That was a message sent from Washington DC to Baltimore on Friday the 24th of May, 1844. And if you're familiar with Morse code, which is not as unlikely as it may sound, you will know that it reads, What hath God wrought? Until well into the 19th century, in order to communicate quickly over a long distance, people had had to send pre-arranged signals by waving flags, thumping on drums, or sounding horns, or by issuing belches of smoke or flame into the air. But come the 1830s, Various teams around the world were beginning to develop electric telegraph systems, wherein some sort of switching device would produce a string of pulses of electricity, which were sent down a long cable and sensed by a similar switching device at the other end. But how could simple pulses of electricity be turned into recognisable language? American artist Samuel Morse, along with his collaborators Joseph Henry and Alfred Vail, had developed their own electric telegraph in 1832, and came up with the robust system of encoding the pulses into groups representing numbers and letters of the alphabet that we know as the Morse Code. When that first string of dots and dashes travelled from Washington to Baltimore over 176 years ago, it signalled the first time in human history that complex thoughts could be communicated at any distance almost instantaneously. Morse's key insight in constructing the code was considering how frequently each letter is used in English. The most commonly used letters have shorter symbols. E, the most commonly used letter of the alphabet, is signified by a single dot. By contrast, Z, the least used letter in English, was signified by the more complex, The correlation between the letter's frequency of occurrence and the complexity of its coded counterpart makes for more efficient communication. Simple words with common letters, for example, get, can be transmitted very quickly. Words made up of less common letters, like zoo, can still be sent but will take more time. In 1865, the International Telecommunications Union changed the code to account for different character frequencies in other languages. There have been other tweaks since, but E is still... although Z is now... The communications system that Morse code was designed for, analogue connections over metal wires that carried a lot of interference and needed a clear on-off type signal to be heard, has evolved significantly. The first big change came just a few decades after Morse's demonstration. In the late 19th century, Guglielmo Marconi invented radio telegraph equipment, which could send Morse code over radio waves rather than wires. The shipping industry loved this new way to communicate with ships at sea, either from ship to ship or to shore based stations, which in peacetime made a lot of sense. But of course carried the disadvantage of potential exposure to unintended listeners if used during hostilities. Nonetheless, by 1910 US law required many passenger ships in US waters to carry wireless sets for sending and receiving messages. After the Titanic sank in 1912, an international agreement required some ships to nominate a person on board whose job it was to listen for radio distress signals at all times. What should he listen out for? Well, SOS immediately comes to mind as an internationally recognised distress call, and has even been scrawled by stranded mariners in the sand of not always fictional desert island beaches. The letters themselves are a bit of a red herring, though. The pattern was selected not for any verbal or written meaning, but simply as an abstract pattern which was easy to memorise and easy to transmit. In common with many other countries, the UK Coast Guard ceased monitoring for distress signals at the end of 1997 because it was too expensive to train people to use Morse. It's all done with satellites now. Fine as long as the satellites keep working. However, there is a thriving community of amateur radio operators who treasure Morse code. It's a tradition tracing back to the earliest days of radio. Some of them may have begun in the Boy Scouts, which features Morse in its communications activity badge. John Hammond from the Radio Amateurs Invalid and Blind Association said some radio users used Morse keys which are modified to suit their disabilities, while George London, secretary of the Morse Code Preservation Society in the UK, said the airways remain clogged with Morse users. Morse is still very much alive, he said, and it's difficult to find a clear spot on many of the popular bands during an international contest. If you don't believe me, then listen most weekends.
7: Más...
3: Now, we don't often play Spanish-language pop songs on The Talking Magazine, but that one wasn't written for any Ibethan boppers. It was born out of the very bitter civil war in Colombia, Not so very long ago, in 2010 in fact, Colonel José Espejo of the Colombian army was preparing a rescue mission for 16 of its soldiers who had been captured by the Fuerzas Armadas Revolucionarias de Colombo, or FARC, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, a communist military group. In over 50 years of civil war, the FARC had engaged in a variety of guerrilla tactics, including kidnapping thousands of people, sometimes for ransom, sometimes for negotiation leverage. These exchangeables were held deep in the jungle in barbed wire enclosures, some for more than a decade. The proposed rescue mission faced a grim difficulty. At the first sign of a raid, the FARC guerrillas were known to slaughter all of their hostages immediately. In attacking the compound, commandos might just as easily get the captives killed as rescued. In order for the mission to succeed, the army needed to find a way to warn the prisoners that a raid was imminent, that they should be alert and ready to fight back or flee into the jungle. But how could they get this message to the hostages without tipping off the guerrillas? As it happened, one of the very few luxuries allowed the FARC prisoners was listening to the radio. Colonel Espejo wondered if there was any way to broadcast a message over the radio that only the soldiers would understand. He needed to create an audio Trojan horse something that seemed like a normal broadcast, but which was in fact a vehicle for delivering a covert message. Espejo got producer Carlos Portela, who owned a small recording studio in Bogotá, to write a song with composer Amauri Hernández, which would sound like any other track in the Lista Cuarenta or Top 40, but would serve as camouflage for a Morse-encoded message to the captives. Many of the soldiers would have learned Morse code as part of their basic training, while the guerrillas were unlikely to be familiar with it. Espejo's hope was that among the listeners would be one of the 16 prisoners and that he would understand this secret message and tell the others. Espejo encoded his message 19 people rescued, you are next, don't lose hope and gave it to Portela to infiltrate it into the song whose lyrics were generally about life as a hostage thus holding some initial interests to the prisoners anyway. The words run, although I'm tied up and alone, I feel as if I'm by your side. He even added, escuche este mensaje, mi hermano, listen to this message, brother, just before the coded message is heard.
7: Este
0: mensaje,
3: Hiding the Morse code took weeks with constant back and forth with Colonel Espejo and the military to make sure that their men would understand the message. It was difficult because Morse code is not a musical beat, says Portella. Sometimes it was too obvious, other times the code was not understood. And we had to hide it three times in the song to make sure the message was received. The code sounds like a brief synthesizer interlude just after the chorus. The coded message included, You are next, as a warning to the hostages to be ready. We let them know that our troops were nearby, said Espejo. At that time, active commando missions were underway, placing troops undercover in FARC controlled areas. Finally, in September 2010, the song was finished. They entitled it Better Days and it was performed by session artists Natalia Gutiérrez y Ángelo, fairly anonymous background musicians who'd worked on other jingles at Portela's studio. Now, with the song completed, they had to get it on the airwaves. Commercial Colombian stations largely played hits only by famous artists like Coldplay and Shakira, but luckily... In many of the jungle areas where the hostages were being held, all the radio stations there were controlled by the government. The hostages were listening to our own stations, said Espejo, so we made sure the song was played. And the song was played. On over a 130 small stations, and was heard by around 3 million people. And although those living in the major cities wouldn't even recognise it, the song did become popular in the rural areas that were controlled by the FARC, who also enjoyed listening to it apparently, even though they were oblivious to its secret message. By December 2010, Better Days was echoing across the jungle. The plan worked. One former hostage was able to confirm the song's effectiveness. He told of a clandestine operation that resulted in the freeing of private Joshua Alvarez, who spoke of hearing the code hidden in the song and revealed how the message was passed from soldier to soldier.
2: What a
0: fabulous story. John Plush examining the sheer power of simple dots and dashes. And talking of dots, can you read Braille? If your answer is yes, then it would seem that you're in a dwindling minority. In the 1960s in America, 50% of blind people used Braille. Today, that figure has reduced to 10%. And in the UK, currently only one in 100 visually impaired people use the system. Why? Well, in the USA, the national braille press reckons that part of the reason is the mainstreaming of blind students into the American public school system, where significantly less time is available for learning braille. And then, of course, there's technology, where all manner of gadgets have been devised to convert the printed word into sound removing the requirement to read altogether. But studies suggest that learning Braille is highly beneficial to a student's success in later life. Braille literacy has been directly correlated with academic achievement and employability. This is especially true in comparison to those who rely on voice synthesizers alone. Writing for the BBC on the occasion of Louis Braille's 200th birthday, ex-Home Secretary David Blunkett tells how important Braille has been to him.
2: Picture a little boy of four. He arrives at school, boarding school, for the first time. Worried, sometimes even frightened, but determined not to cry. Picture then a little boy with a contraption in front of him on his desk the following morning. A stylus, to him a pin with a wooden knob on the top with which he is expected not only to press downward to make what he considers to be a hole in thick paper but also being told that he's going to operate from right to left that little four-year-old was of course me the reason why it was necessary to write from right to left was that in those days without the sophistication firstly of mechanical and then of electronic braille production the dots had to be pressed downwards and, when turned over, would provide a mirror image. It was therefore necessary not only to write from right to left, but also to reverse the actual letters, so that they came out on the opposite side exactly as you'd read it, left to right. If all this sounds complicated, it jolly well was. This system was nevertheless a liberator for me, and hundreds of thousands like me. When chairing a meeting, it is vital that I have an agenda on my own that I can refer to without reference to someone else. It is vital that I have notes, even when I shy away from actually reading speeches verbatim. It's no secret that I found reading statements at the dispatch box in the Commons a trial. Statements have to be read verbatim because the print version has been handed out, whereas, of course, speeches are an entirely different matter and much more up my street as, of course, with answering questions. With a set of notes, I can make a speech, having learnt the art of oratory at a very early age. In fact, it's probably a question of cause and effect. My own development of oratory came from the fact that by using notes, I could overcome the difficulty of not being able to skim over a written page of Braille in the same way as you can skim a page of ordinary writing. For me... Braille has been a method of ensuring that I can work on equal terms, using my own initiative and doing it in my own way. For others, it has been an absolutely vital way of ensuring private correspondence and, with more recent developments, being able to demand bank statements which allow privacy rather than relying on someone else to read them at a time when confidentiality could be crucial. In the future, so many of the public forms and communications we receive could easily be put in Braille by the use of computer software and the transcription equipment now readily available to public authorities. My staff use exactly such software, along with Braille embossers, in order to be able to produce material for me on a regular basis. So we lift the glass to thank Louis Braille for the ingenuity, the confidence and the determination that enabled others like him to seek and gain independence, equality and dignity.
0: If you've studied Braille, you may know that it owes its existence to a military system designed by Charles Barbier that was intended as a silent communication tool for Napoleon's army in the early 1800s. The French were used to exchanging messages by a system of flashing lights, but found that at night the flashing lights would attract enemy bullets. So Barbier came up with a system of embossing messages with a knife on scraps of paper, making a series of raised dots, representing a form of shorthand, which could be carried to the recipient and read in the dark, without the need for so much as a candle. As it was based on phonetics, he called it sonography. But even with that catchy name, the army still didn't buy it. The soldiers found it too complicated. So Barbier took his idea instead to Paris and the Royal Institution for Blind Youth. At that time, the institute was using a system devised by its founder, Valentin Ouey, OE's system impressed the shapes of typographic characters onto wet paper, producing real letters, embossed in high relief, that could be identified not only by sight, but by touch too. Because of the large size of the letters, though, the books were very big and heavy, and had the additional disadvantage that students couldn't reproduce the characters themselves if they wanted to write. One of the blind students at the Institute, though, was a 12-year-old Louis Braille. Young Louis was inspired by Barbier's rather cumbersome system of knife marks and set about refining it with a pointed stylus. Another of the problems with Barbier's system was that it relied on a field of 12 dots, which covered too large an area for a fingertip to read without moving. And anyway, Barbier's method was based on sounds rather than proper spelling as opposed to Braille's six-dot matrix representing individual letters. Although Braille's system is a great deal more compact than that of Oe or Barbier, J.K. Rowling's book, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, still occupies ten volumes. Webster's unabridged dictionary is a shelf-hogging 72 volumes. But even that is mere bedtime reading, compared with the World Book Encyclopaedia in Braille, which will fill your library on its own with 145 volumes. The longest work of fiction owned by the RNIB Library Service is Vikram Seth's A Suitable Boy, which fills 39 volumes and takes up one and a half library shelves. And while we're doing statistics, When the RNIB Library moved from Stockport to Peterborough in 2013, it took 37 articulated lorries to shift its stock of 25,000 titles over a period of 12 days. The very first Braille publication was Louis Braille's own book about his reading system in 1829, while the world's first full-length Braille book, A Brief History of France, was published by the French Institute for Blind Use in 1837. If you are a Braille reader, how fast can you go? Reading speeds vary, but the fastest you're likely to read in Braille is about 400 words a minute. Not bad when you consider that the average sighted reader barely manages 200. Although only that declining one in a hundred of the UK's blind use Louis's system, new uses for the code are being found which could turn the tide. Several toy manufacturers are making their products more accessible to children who are blind or visually impaired. There's a Rubik's Cube in Braille too and in 2019 Mattel released their first deck of Uno cards using Braille. Meanwhile Lego will soon release Braille bricks. And very excitingly, following the suggestion of a software engineer at the Kennedy Space Centre, an asteroid that NASA discovered in 1992 was named 9969 Braille. He'd have been proud of that. Louis Braille died in 1852, just two days after his 43rd birthday, ironically just two years before his reading system was finally adopted by the Institute and then the rest of the world. Louis was no stranger to irony. It can't have escaped him that the pointed tool which he first used to impress upon paper the very dots that made him famous itself bore a close resemblance to the pointed tool that his father used to use for puncturing leather for his saddle making business. The same tool with which Louis had accidentally damaged his own eye at the age of three. The injury which led to his becoming completely blind by the time he was five. Apart from that, Louis Braille was a bright kid. Not only did he invent a lifeline for so many blind people needing to read and write, but he was also a consummate musician, and extended his system to transcribe music for blind people to play. What were the chances of that accident occurring to someone as able to turn it to their advantage as the one in a million Louis Braille? Now that's less than one in a hundred. Time for a game!
3: This time, our word search game reads like an episode in a soap opera. But as usual for a word search, you're looking for words that have nothing to do with the subject of the passage, but all to do this time with communication. Indeed, one of the words you have to listen out for is the word communicate. In case you haven't come across this game before, here's how it works. I give you a list of words and then I read out a short story in which all the words in the list are hidden. Don't worry about spelling, it's the sounds of the words that are important. For example, the word essay is hidden in this sentence. Some people guess aliens started the human race. Some people guess aliens started the human race. (laughs) Easy, no. Some are, some aren't. The words you're listening out for are in order: satellite, S.O.S., grammar, paragraph, sentence, scream, speech, and talk. Satellite, S.O.S., grammar, paragraph, sentence, scream. Speech and talk. We'll start with satellite, SOS and grammar. This is the passage. Pete bounced onto the sofa, which collapsed even as he sat. A lighter me wouldn't have this trouble, he grumbled. You should do exercises so essential to losing weight, said his grandmother. Don't frighten me with that, Grandma, said Pete. If you want to hear that again, just press your track back button. That's the leftmost button of the three at the front of your boombox. If you're listening on the internet, you'll just have to shuffle back a bit. So, did you hear satellite, SOS and grammar? Here's the passage again, and I'll play a ping where each of those words occurs. Pete bounced onto the sofa, which collapsed even as he sat. A lighter me, wouldn't have this trouble, he grumbled. You should do exercise as so essential for losing weight, said his grandmother. Don't frighten me with that, Grandma, said Pete. Well, Grandma shouldn't have given you any trouble. The other two took a bit more searching. The passage continues, hiding the words paragraph, sentence, scream, speech and talk. Here we go. Get up off your backside and finish repairing my roof, retorted Pete's grandmother throwing a paintbrush at him. Pete also picked up a rag, grafter and creosote and headed for the stairs. He'd risen ten steps when he looked back and asked, What's for tea, Gran? He hoped it was ice cream. His favourite was peach flavour. You get that roof fixed first, muttered his grandmother and tossed him her torque wrench. Again, if you want to hear it once more, press your track back button. Here's the passage, with a... for each word you're listening for. Get up off your backside and finish repairing my roof, retorted Pete's grandmother, throwing a paintbrush at him. Pete also picked up a rag, rafter and creosote and headed for the stairs. He'd risen ten steps when he looked back and asked, What's for tea, Gran? He hoped it was ice cream. His favourite was speech flavour. You get that roof fixed first, muttered his grandmother, and tossed him her talk (coughs) wrench. So well done if you got paragraph and sentence. Talk was a bit easy, though. There are six words in the next part of our story to listen for, and they are Library, Communicate, Conversation, Emphasise, Morse, and Whisper. Library, Communicate, Conversation, emphasise, morse and whisper. So, back to Pete's building project. Pete's friends, Eli and Professor Nick, came round. A few days earlier, he had helped Nick and Eli bury Eli's goldfish, the second one in three months. Professor Nick had said thanks a lot. Pete replied somewhat pointedly, You're welcome, you, Nick, ate. Eli's first ones, I remember The professor defended himself Lots of energy and a goldfish Can't beat that with a bit of egg and bacon For, say, shunting a train Or, or lifting a roof truss You should try him for size He's strange, thought Pete More to the pity But if he'd like to show his perfectionism Maybe he'd help me with Granny's roof Track back to hear it again Have you found all six? I'll read it again, and you can hear where they're all hidden. Pete's friends Eli and Professor Nick came round. A few days earlier, he had helped Nick and Eli bury Eli's goldfish, the second one in three months. Professor Nick had said, thanks a lot. Pete replied somewhat pointedly, you're welcome, you, Nick, ate Eli's first one, as I remember. The professor defended himself, lots of energy in a goldfish, Can't beat that with a bit of egg and bacon for, say, shunting a train or lifting a roof truss. You should try him for size. He's strange, thought Pete. More's the pity. But if he'd like to show his perfectionism, maybe he'd help
0: me with Granny's roof. (laughs) Well, if playing with words isn't your favourite pastime... Have you
1: tried knitting? Jane has. Every once in a while, this is how knitting goes. And this is how it went, starting one Monday night, when I decided to knit a lace shawl. From lovely, proper instructions, written by the very experienced Nancy Bush, and ended up Wednesday night with nothing but a reminder that you can have the best directions in the world – But if you won't read them, you're probably going to live through the knitting equivalent of running into a tree over and over and over. Monday afternoon, I cheerfully began my shawl casting on hundreds of stitches and then read the part where the pattern clearly states that the cast-on should be accomplished with the yarn held double. I rip it out. Monday night. I cast on hundreds of stitches again, this time with the yarn held double. Encouraged, I start the first chart. Knit competently along for a while and then realise that I should have stopped knitting with a double yarn like the pattern clearly states. i rip it out. Tuesday morning. I cast on hundreds of stitches with the yarn held double. Drop the extra yarn, and knit a row. And then realise, I should have started the chart, like the pattern clearly states. I rip it out. Tuesday afternoon, I cast on hundreds of stitches, with the yarn held double, drop the extra yarn, and start the chart. Then realise that I have not cast on the number of stitches clearly stated in the pattern, but have actually transposed the numbers. I have 313, not 331. I rip it out.
0: Ah, the power of the written word. Imagine, though, having possibly the greatest novelist of the Victorian era actually read his works to you out loud. Phil.
2: In order to satisfy his lifelong love of the stage and his constant need of money to support both his family and his mistress, Charles Dickens undertook the arduous and personally exhausting enterprise of giving public readings across Britain, Ireland and, ultimately, the USA. But there was much more to it than that. Dickens felt a strong sense of duty to his readers and followers and derived great satisfaction from the relationship that he achieved in the theatres and public spaces that made up his tour itineraries. We know quite a lot about these, as his tour manager, George Dolby, wrote about them in a book published in 1885 called Charles Dickens' As I Knew Him. A tour was envisaged for 1866, but when the news leaked out, there was so much clamour for dates, details and tickets that the plans had to be speedily finalised. We have no difficulty in the 21st century in recognising fame or celebrity when we see it, but would probably not have expected to find it in a novelist. Dickens, however, was wildly popular. His works had been issued as parts of monthly magazines, thus making them accessible to many at the bookstall. They were also read aloud in pubs, tea meetings, penny readings, and even in alleyways for those without much money or the skills of reading for themselves. This was truly universal popularity across the social classes, with the poor feeling that he was very much their writer. Dickens was both aware and deeply proud of this. He was always solicitous for the poorer parts of his audience, and stipulated that the cheapest sheets should be no worse than the others'. I have always been the champion and friend of the working man, he said, all through my career, and it would be inconsistent, if not unjust, to put any difficulty in the way of his attending my readings. This could cause serious logistical problems in that area so foreign to Victorian society, health and safety. Dickens insisted that the cheaper tickets were not put on sale until the evening of the performance, thus often causing the dreaded shilling rush. These could be pretty dangerous, with, on one occasion, in Liverpool, 3,000 people having to be turned away. The terms of the 1867 tour were agreed at 42 readings, in return for a total of £2,500 plus expenses. The promoters, chapels, were very happy, and would make a considerable profit on the deal. Dickens threw himself into it with all the characteristic nervousness and energy – His readings were from specially adapted versions of his work and his preparation was meticulous. He confessed to having rehearsed the Dr Marigold story more than 200 times in private. Just before his death, in fact, his family heard him perfecting his performance of the murder of Nancy from Oliver Twist alone in his garden. He prepared Dr Marigold for this tour together with extracts from Nicholas Nickleby, Dombey and Son, The Pickwick Papers, David Copperfield and a rather sentimental story called Boots at the Holly Tree Inn. The stage was very carefully set up with a screen behind Dickens, a writing desk and a lighting system that ran on gas, using gas barrels and copper wires holding up heavy reflector screens. This could present problems. In Birmingham, an inexperienced fitter strung the wire over a gas jet. As he read, Dickens could see the wire glowing red and knew that if it were to break, a heavy iron screen would fall on part of the audience. He made a calculation on the longevity of the wire and abridged his last reading, leaving Dolby to extinguish the jet just in time. Later in the tour, as they reached Dublin, they ran into a fragile political situation and fears of a Fenian uprising to capture the city. On landing, their equipment was seized as it resembled military hardware, but was restored just in time for the performance. Sadly, Dalby tells us nothing about the Hereford and Worcester parts of the tour, oddly, as he has a family in Ross on Wye. However, on the 11th of April 1867, Charles Dickens gave one of his reading performances in the public hall in Worcester, having appeared the previous evening in the Shire Hall in Hereford. The Worcester Journal of April 6th reported, All readers of the works of Dickens will be delighted that the opportunity is to be afforded them on Wednesday of seeing the great novelist among us and of hearing him read a selection from his own works. Mr Dickens is announced to read his Dr Marigold and The Trial from Pickwick, a happy blending of the pathetic with the humorous which will please everybody. Places for the reading, which is to be given in the Music Hall, are being rapidly taken at Mesoditon's, where the box plan may be seen, and intending visitors will bear in mind a request on the programme to be seated before the commencement of the reading. So not for Worcester the gnawing sadness of young Paul Dombey's death or the awfulness of Do the Boys Hall, but the characterisation of a cockney cheap jack, a sort of Victorian Dell boy, touting his wares from the back of a cart. Together with this was the tragic comic trial of Mr Pickwick in a breach of promise case brought by Mrs Bardell. Mrs Bardell believes that Mr Pickwick has asked her to marry him and then gone back on his word and is encouraged by unscrupulous lawyers to take Mr P to court. A farcical court scene follows in which Pickwick is found guilty and preferring prison to the indignity of paying damages is locked in jail. Dickens had no time for the British legal system and the parody is superbly done. How many in the Worcester audience, I wonder, had also seen the foul side of Victorian legal practice? The public hall in the Corn Market is now gone, leaving only the toilet block on what is now St Martin's Car Park, but it was an important venue in its time. Originally built as the Corn Exchange, it would host concerts, opera, a great moving panorama showing the recent discovery of the source of the Nile, Indian and Arab jugglers, dances, the occasional tea for workhouse children and, on Monday evening, penny readings of various periodicals and novels. Elgar and Vorjak performed there too. Dickens was a great success, as ever. His selected readings from his work, with emphasis on the moving and the humorous, invested so much emotional energy in them that he had to lie down afterwards to recover and drink a glass of champagne. The effort, especially on the later American tour, clearly helped to bring about his early death in 1870. The journal reported a very large and fashionable audience in the music hall. Many were disappointed by being unable to get in, such was the demand. The journal continued, The consummate skill with which he recited Dr Marigold must have made his audience more deeply impressed with the power of delineating character than they would have been by reading the work itself. There were frequent and hearty outbursts of applause. Thus, Dickens achieved a wider and deeper appreciation of his work. By reading it and virtually acting it out, he could control the interpretation and put all the right emotional levers at the same time. This reading saw the end of a tour that had taken Dickens on an exhausting journey. He now withdrew to attend to his periodical magazine, his next novel, and his secret mistress, Nellie Turnham, in Peckham, who was ill. But that's another story.
0: The great Charles Dickens performing in Worcester. Just think. Thank you, Phil. Dickens started his writing career as a political journalist for the Morning Chronicle. I don't think he ever wrote for the Worcester News, however, though if he had, you may be sure that his work would have been conveyed to you on a USB memory stick by the Worcester Talking Newspaper. You will have heard in the Talking Newspaper recently that we were honoured in September to receive this year's Mayor's Award for services to the community. We were presented with a glass plaque in a ceremony outside the Guildhall. Liz Hill and Carol Hartle, who've been volunteers on the paper for many years now, accepted the award on our behalf. It was a very noisy affair, but John Plush managed to ask Councillor Alan Amos, who inaugurated the award scheme, how it all started.
4: Well, when I was mayor, I realised there were a lot of people out there doing a lot of good work for other people. What I call unsung heroes. They were just doing good works for others. They didn't want any recognition or any reward. Um, And I thought it was about time we did recognise them and we did reward them. So when I was mayor, we set up the first ever Best of Worcester Awards to recognise and reward people who had worked hard for others, not expecting anything back themselves. And we're now six years on from when I was mayor. Uh, and so this is a a continuing event and of course we've developed it. We've now extended it to uh, some school musicians, I think we need to reward uh, and encourage young people. And also for the first time ever, and I'm very proud of this, this is the first ever event in Worcester which has specifically recognised the work of the gay community and the Polish community. We're looking for people who have voluntarily decided they want to do something to help others that's the essence of it um, putting in time not necessarily money but time uh, concern for others trying to improve the lives of others um, recognizing there are people who are less fortunate and doing something about it liz hill accepted the award i think after 42 years worcester news and equipment service for the blind are really delighted to receive
5: this
3: i asked liz how she felt receiving it
4: Um, Very privileged, yes. It's a a great honour, I think, and we're very appreciative of of being recognised. And uh, it's a tribute also to all the volunteers.
0: Liz Hill there, having received the Mayor's Award for Services to the Community on behalf of the Worcester Talking Newspaper and Magazine. As you know, on account of coronavirus, our magazines are recorded, at the moment, away from our studio. Phil, Jane and myself, we're all making our recordings at home. But think of the plight of theatres up and down the country and the professional actors in them whose income depends upon performing regularly to large paying audiences, which of course is almost impossible at this time. In this climate then, we're especially grateful to three local professional performers for bringing to life for us a short drama, written specially for the Talking magazine about communication communication not just over a long distance but through time itself we present ben humphrey and jonathan darby from the swan repertory company and mark Devlin, whom you might remember from bbc radio in john stanbury's the chronoracle
5: So, what do you make of that? Well, I've heard better. It's a terrible recording. That machine's an original Edison cylinder phonograph, Gavin. It's over a hundred years old. What do you expect? I rather expected Dame Nellie Melba or Caruso, perhaps. Not Neil Armstrong. Doesn't it strike you as odd, though, rather than disappointing? How do you mean? That cylinder was recorded in about 1900. Uh, Ah, I see what you mean. Yes, that is odd, isn't it? We landed on the moon in 1969. That recording was made at the end of the 19th century. Yes, but don't be daft, it can't have been, can it? It was. Explain. There's no doubt. I had the cylinder looked at by a chap at the British Museum. He lent me that machine to play it on. It's genuine, all right. But where did you get it? It's been in the family for donkey's years, in a box upstairs with a couple of others. But I had a letter come last week from a distant cousin in America... She sent me some stuff that kind of explains it. The cylinders belong to a Bulgarian ancestor of mine, who left them behind when he went to seek his fortune in the States. Uh, Where is it now? Uh, Dear Harold, blah, blah, blah. Mother died last year, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Yes, Uh, Uncle Dimitri's papers given to great-grandma might mean more to you than to me. Well, that's it, really. Oh, well, that explains everything. It's this that explains everything. Uncle Dimitri's memoirs.
7: Met a small family from the homeland today. Mother, father, baby daughter. Amongst all the other immigrants from the rest of Europe, they seem to be the only souls on board the Titanic who come from Bulgaria, riding over their name. The father seems to be of a somewhat revolutionary turn of mind. He says the main reason for his journey is to gain support for Lazarov and the fight against Serbia. Ah, my troubled country. I told them why I'm here. Not all of it, of course. Just the fact that I want financial backing to get the chronological onto a commercial footing how I tried to persuade the Royal Society to give me a grant, but they wouldn't listen. Nobody listens. It's the most important invention in the history of mankind. But they won't listen. They won't listen to me when I tell them about it, and they refuse to listen to the chronological itself. If they did, they would know. They would understand. But America, New York, they will listen. Ah, Petrova, I hope you're right. I hope they listen. It'll be several days before we get to New York. Petrova's going to be there to meet me, show me her home, her apartment, introduce me to her professors. (laughs) They will listen to my clever sister. I thought I'd try the chronorical while we're out at sea. It doesn't work very well out here. It's strange how I can go back to when we boarded, but not forward, more than a couple of days. But I can demonstrate it properly when I see Petrova's professors. They will understand the principle behind it too how inverting the polarity of a sound and combining it with the original sound completely cancels out the sound you hear, allowing the other sounds to come through, the sounds that were in the air just a few seconds before, or, with careful adjustment, hours or days before, months, years even. But not only before. Ate dinner tonight with the Radinovs. Sweet baby, a girl, just one year old, same age as Petrova's granddaughter. Not as pretty, of course. (laughs) I don't expect so. I've never seen Petrova's granddaughter. Vasilka, that's the baby's mother, says she's very bright, very aware. They even named Hannah after the prophetess in the New Testament. The father, Alexei, talks only about revolution. And miracle, of course. Not only before, but after. Later. The future. If you push the inverted sound forward very slightly, you can hear the echoes of sounds that haven't been made yet. I pointed the sound collector out of the window which looks out onto the street and I heard the sound of a governess cart, his driver shouting at his horse even though there was no such carriage there at that moment. But a few seconds later the cart itself passed below my window the driver shouting the same words in the same voice I had heard just seconds before. I adjusted the timing a little more and I caught the sound of the town's only horseless locomotive pot, pot, potting put, along the street. It sounded like it backfired once, scaring a horse nearby, which you could hear distinctly whinnying noisily. More than ten minutes later, that very car passed beneath my window. It backfired once, and sure enough, a horse whinnied. So, how far back or forward in time can it sense? Once I took the Chronicle to the Houses of Parliament in London and I heard Mr. Gladstone campaigning against Disraeli's foreign policy during the Bulgarian uprising, a movement close to my heart. That same day I heard the crowd cheering at Queen Victoria's coronation then weeping quietly at her funeral procession. By adjusting the effect forward, I heard many things that made little sense to me. Coronations of future monarchs, yes, but also urgent wailings like a banshee followed by loud explosions. Strange music, jungle drums, noise, so much noise. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Some of these sounds are recorded onto one of Mr. Edison's phonograph machines. I have two of the cylinders on board with me here. To play to anyone, if they will only Listen.
5: Are you getting the idea, Gav?
7: Absolutely.
5: So this gadget, the, um, the chrono-something... Oracle. Yes, the chrono-oracle. It's like a, a, a time machine where you can hear stuff that went on in the past. Or the future. But the bit I don't understand is how on earth you can hear things that occurred in the past or the future by inverting the sounds of the present. The idea of sound waves being inverted wasn't a new idea, even when Uncle Dimitri was experimenting with it. Aristotle understood how a sound source pushed the air forward, then back, then forward again, vibrating the air. Eventually, it reaches your eardrum, and you perceive it as sound. Inverting it merely turns a push into a pull, so adding them together cancels them out. So you hear nothing? No, except that you do if you're using Uncle's invention to do it. Having cancelled out all the sounds of the present... You're left with just the echoes, as he puts it, of the past. So, if it was so clever, how come the whole world's never heard of it?
7: I think we have some problems ahead. I tried out the chronological again tonight and I heard sounds I do not understand. Sounds I do not like. Sailors shouting, winds screaming, children crying. Objects hitting the water below the ship. I adjusted the time zone back just a few minutes and I heard someone arguing about the icebergs here. Then I heard a terrible noise, scraping and roaring and bellowing worse than the horses of Hades themselves. A voice shouting, Don't worry, we can't sink. Why? How? Sink? I heard voices calling out women and children first into the live boat. A pistol shot. I went to the captain with my concerns. I explained how one can hear the future with my machine. He wouldn't listen. I implored him to stop, to turn back, to avoid whatever disaster awaits us. But he wouldn't give me time to show him the chronicle, to let him hear for himself. He wouldn't listen, any more than the scientists and men of ideas in England would listen. And now it has happened, just as I heard it. I returned to the captain and he admitted, yes, I was right. But not to worry, as the ship cannot sink. Those words Women and children first came back to me. I must preserve the cron oracle. I shall give it to Vasidka Radinova to take on to the first lifeboat, just in case.
5: Lord, did he die? Mm-hmm. And, and so what happened to the cron um, the oracle? <laughs> According to my cousin's letter, Uncle Dmitri handed it to the Bulgarian woman and her baby, like he said, who took it on to a lifeboat. And were saved. How did your cousin know that? Because after the Carpathia had docked in New York, the Bulgarian woman found Great Aunt Petrova standing on the quayside, asking for news of her brother. So the chrono-what's-it is okay. The Bulgarian woman said the lifeboat was too full to save space. She had to drop it overboard. Oh. I looked up on the internet the name of the baby Bulgarian girl. Her name sounded distantly familiar, so I checked her out. Hannah Radinova. It seems she and her mother eventually went back to Bulgaria, and the child began to live up to her name. The prophetess in the New Testament? Mm. Prophetess was right. She was one of those fortune tellers who predicted loads of disasters and stuff for decades to come. Hannah was like that, but she had a much higher success rate with her predictions than the others. She foretold the two world wars, 9-11, Donald Trump. She forecast the moon landing in 69, too. So you're thinking the chronorical gadget maybe didn't go over the side. That Radinova kept it and used it. Not hit-and-miss pseudo-clairvoyance at all, but actual science. All of it based entirely on fact. Every major thing she predicted came to pass, as they say, because she'd heard all of the world news on the Chronorical. If we went to Bulgaria, perhaps we could... Um, Yes, there was one other thing she predicted. Check out the last thing on her list. (laughs) Oh, my God. Explosion? Nuclear disaster at Sizewell, The the British Isles practically destroyed the whole of Europe, contaminated my... my God! God, but we must warn them, tell them, tell them to shut down. And how are we going to make them listen? I don't know. Somehow. We've got to try. When's it supposed to happen? Does she say? Tomorrow.
2: In The Chronoracle
0: by John Stanbury... Gavin was played by Ben Humphrey, Harold by Jonathan Darby, and Uncle Dimitri by Mark Devlin. The chronicle was produced and directed by John Plush. So, from Jane Fair's, it's a secluded but congenial. Goodbye. From Phil Lee, a distant but impeccably connected. Goodbye. And from me and Amos Russell-Wells, it's a short epilogue entitled on a certain conversation. Two egotists conversed one day, each in a quite contented way, and each, the vain and happy elf, soliloquized about himself. Speech is a bridge from mind to mind, for gainful interchange designed. But when you meet a selfish man, the bridge has lost its central span. Goodbye. Thank <laughs> you.